0: Uh, We're in Mark chapter 14, making our way through the gospel. We're we're getting closer and closer to the the end of the the gospel. And so um, we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of chapter 14. And if you have your uh, copy of God's holy word in front of you, read along with me, starting in verse 1. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that they, there won't be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster a jar, a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it over his head, but some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her, and Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can always do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then, excuse me, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them, and when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money, so he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Lord, uh, in uh, these 11 verses, there's so much packed in about who we are and who you are. And so, Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching of your word to change us from the core to be made more like your son, Jesus. Convict our hearts and lead us to faith, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. When does something become too much of something? I mean, we all know uh, what it's like to eat too much, uh, but where is that line? That if I just eat one more bite past this, it's going to be way too much. And if I eat less than this, it's it's not going to be enough. It's it's really hard to figure that out. And but those of us who have maybe overeaten in a meal or two, we certainly know what it feels like to cross over that line, right? What about, too, what about too much or not enough sleep? How do we find the line between that? If you don't get enough sleep, you're tired. If you get too much sleep, guess what? You're tired. So where is that sweet spot of finding um, not too much, not too little? Uh, what about uh, the fact that uh, if, you, if you do any sort of research about people who come into a fortune really don't do well? With coming and how to deal with that, that fortune. And they would probably say that their life has not gotten better with wealth, but in fact, worse. Uh, the, uh, the notorious B.I.G., the, the, the rapper from the 90s, Biggie Smalls, said it best when he said, You got more money, you got more problems. Uh, it, you can't have too much. Uh, have you got some Biggie Smalls fans here? Yeah, the more money we come across, the more problems that we see. Um, sometimes the only way to figure out whether or not you overdid it and did too much exercise is the next day when it's really hard to get out of bed. So where's that line of knowing uh, that it's been too much? Um, I'm at the age now where I overdid it yesterday is becoming more and more in my vernacular. And so I, I definitely feel the limits in that. Even though we try to deny it and pay the price, we know that we have limits and we know that limits are good we uh, know that it is not good to eat ourselves sick. We know that it is not good to overexert ourselves because it could result in an injury. Uh, When it comes to our faith and our devotion to Jesus, however, are we bound to such limits? Is there a point at which we can say, this is an appropriate amount of, of faith and devotion and anything beyond that uh, goes into the realm of religious fanaticism. Our culture certainly wants to uh, agree with that. In our culture, if you believe in Jesus, that, that's all fine and dandy, that, that, that's great, but the moment that you have any sort of public expression of that faith, you, you've, you've crossed that line. You're one of those, those crazy Jesus freaks. If you want to believe in Jesus, that's fine, but if you even hint at wanting to use him to uh, have disagreement with the cultural and political narrative today of the sexual ethics and gender expression and uh, wokeism of the day, then, then you are uh, not only a religious nut and maybe a bigot, but you are increasingly becoming a menace to society. As believers, we should expect that from the culture, but what about from the church do we place limits on how much faith or devotion is, is too much? Maybe not officially. I mean, there's no uh, Emmanuel manual on uh, how much faith and devotion is appropriate for uh, your weekly time of service in the church or how much money that you should give or what your, where your individual devotions should look like or be. That would be ridiculous and it would be a legalistic expression of, of the gospel that we treasure. But many of us have these limits in our hearts, don't we? I mean, some of us would say uh, that we're we're going to do fill in the blank. Nothing more, nothing less. I'm only going to give this amount. Nothing more, nothing less. To do any more would be irresponsible. It would be reckless. And when we put such limits on ourselves, however, we are really showing how uncommitted and undevoted, not devoted, we actually are. We're looking at not how to love the Lord, our God, with all of our heart, souls, mind, and strength, but rather we are trying to find how can we fit Jesus into our already hectic schedules and, and, uh, and lifestyles. Jesus calls us to unlimited and extravagant faith and devotion. And in this text, Mark provides a vignette that contrasts the difference between rejecting Jesus Um, and devoting your entire existence to him. And in this text, you're going to be able to self-diagnose a little bit your heart and figure some ways out in which you can realign your life to how Jesus has called you to live. So let's go ahead and get to work. The first thing we need to do is practice unlimited and extravagant devotion and faith. We need to practice extravagant and unlimited devotion and faith. Verse 1 sets the stage here for this contrast that defines the entire discourse. He begins by by dating it. He says, two days before the Passover and the the festival of unleavened bread. Now, in our calendars, uh, this would mean that it happened on Wednesday of Holy Week. So, we're T-minus two days or so from the crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Bread uh, sort of work in tandem, and they're they're some of the most important days in the Jewish calendar because they both look back to the same event when God judged Pharaoh by killing all the firstborns in the land of Egypt, and death had passed over the Israelites if they had slaughtered a lamb in the place of their firstborn and wiped blood over their doorposts. The Passover and the Feast could only be celebrated in Jerusalem. And so, uh, because of that, there was an influx of pilgrims that showed up to celebrate. Whereas the the population of Jerusalem would probably be around 80,000 or so, give or take, um, during that time, with the pilgrims that came in, it could have added an upward of 200,000 more pilgrims, uh, or even more than that. It could be 300,000 people in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, the Roman government took note of this, and security was heightened. Uh, the governor, Pontius Pilate, uh, didn't actually live in Jerusalem, but during this week, he came and made his, uh, uh, made his stay there during this holiday because of the potential threat of uprisings and riots that would uh, potentially break out in uh, Jerusalem against Rome. And during this particular week, there's a great fervor because Jesus was at the height of his popularity, and he is now in town. And everything that he did up to this point in Jerusalem during Holy Week only increased his mystique. Who is this this Jesus, the The religious leaders saw their approval ratings continue to plummet, and they noticed that Jesus' approval ratings were skyrocketing and had no indication of stopping. So the second part in verse 1 tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. That's not new news to us at all. We've pretty much known throughout the Gospel of Mark that this was their plan, Um, They saw him as a blasphemer who threatened the Jewish faith as a whole, and in their estimation, they had to get rid of this guy, and they had to get rid of this guy as quickly as they possibly could. But they're obviously not going to do it when there's tons of people around who are in awe of this man. So verse uh, 3 then tells us, um, verse 2, I'm sorry, not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. Well, they ended up finding out uh, a quiet way and a secret way to, um, to arrest him by bribing an insider or a mole, you might want to say. Uh, verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray them. So, we'll see why Judas did this here in just a moment, but for now, it, it, it's, uh, we need to pay more attention to their reaction. Look in verse 11. When they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So, we started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. So, now, before we begin to Judge Judas and the chief priests here, it's wise to pause and take an assessment of the many ways these verses are caricatures of us. Do you think that the chief priests and the scribes were confused as to who Jesus was and what his claims were? No. They understood very well what Jesus was claiming to be. Their problem was the same problem that you and I struggle with. This is not a problem of the intellect. This isn't a problem of knowing facts about who Jesus is. This is a problem with our wills. It is a moral problem. It's not that we don't understand the claims of Jesus. It's that we don't want to believe the claims of Jesus. It has everything to do with the fact that we don't like his claims. We don't want them to be true, and we will go to great lengths in order to convince ourselves that it is not true. Because if what Jesus is claiming and everything he said is true, then that requires me to submit to to Him, if everything that He said is is accurate, that He is the Son of God, that He is God incarnate, then I relinquish my self-autonomy. And friends, we are people who are addicted to control, and we do not want to give that to Jesus. And we, like the chief priests and the scribes, really Really like being kings and queens of our own kingdom. Perhaps you're here today and this describes you. You've grown up in the church. You've known all about Jesus' person and his work, and yet you don't want anything to do with him. You, you You don't want to go there. It's crazy, but let me suggest to you that your rejection of Jesus has less to do with him and more to do with you. It says more about your hard heart and your unwillingness to recognize the sin in your life. It speaks volumes about uh, your perceived notion of self-sufficiency, and it highlights your desire above all else to be the captain of your ship. You know who Jesus is, and you know what he is all about. You just want nothing to do with him. The more that you can push him out of my, out of your mind, the better— Friend, stop looking for a cunning way to arrest and kill Jesus in your mind and in your conscience. And rather, repent, turn from your sin, and turn towards Jesus. Him and Him alone can give you freedom from yourself and the tyranny of your own self-autonomy. You know, I said this, is a, this vignette is a contrast, so in verses 3 through 9 now, show us the opposite of what the willful rejection is. Look in verse 3 with me. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume and pure nard, she broke the jar and poured it on his head. So it's curious that Mark did not name this woman. He just said a woman. However, we can be fairly certain that he is referring to Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. Uh, We know this from the location. Both Mary, Martha, and Lazarus uh, lived in Bethany, and uh, Jesus had a close association with him. John uh, tells us that Jesus was living in Bethany with them, during this particular holy week leading up to his death. And we can assume this because of the parallel account in John chapter 12, which specifically uh, name drops Mary as the one who anointed Jesus in such a way. But the question is, why would John use Mary's name but not Mark? I mean, this certainly would have, would have given some credibility to his story, It seems, however, that Mark omitted her name because his point in these verses isn't about the person. It's about her action. It is about uh, what she did. Verse 3 tells us that she took an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of of pure nard, broke it poured it on jesus head now that seems very strange to us i mean imagine if someone you're at a dinner party and uh someone walked in um and uh had a bottle of uh, uh chanel coco mademoiselle oh they perfume like you see on all these commercials now and they they didn't just they didn't just you know twist it off and pour it they Take a knife, cut it off, break it, and then just pour it all over the, the honored guest. That would be weird. It wouldn't be weird to them. This is sort of anointing language that was happening here. What was weird, though, was the object of that anointing. Olive oil, fine. Use olive oil. Olive oil was in plenty. This perfume here, this is too much i mean this is this is an import from India, apparently, and it was uh worth about a year's salary now the average american um, average American salary right now is about fifty four thousand dollars a year, so that's like comparing um <laughs> Chanel number five limited edition grand x trait which you can now buy on the Chanel website, I found out today, for a price tag of $30,000 for 30 ounces. It's like comparing that to Brute. Which, by the way, when I was in France, I had a friend and came on the bus and said, I got this great French cologne called Brute. I'm like, brother, have you ever been to Walgreens? He'd never heard of it before. So, you can naturally understand why some of these disciples reacted as they did now in verse 4. But some of them were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Now, it's hard to imagine um, what was really going on in the minds of the disciples here, but... um, I I, kind of doubt they had an entirely pure motive for what was happening. Uh, Doubtful they were really thinking of the poor. Because it's really good, it's really easy to use a lower class as an excuse to push your agenda. I mean, if you're going to waste a perfectly good bottle of designer perfume, why not sell it and give it to the poor? Namely, us. Us. Why not just do that? And if we read between the lines here, we get a glimpse of what they were really thinking. Again, it portrays a contrast here that we have to see. Why did she do this? She wasn't making a theological or a political statement. Rather, she was making a statement of love and devotion if you remember in the Gospel of John, Mary's brother Lazarus was a good friend of Jesus. He was dead for four days, and Jesus shows up on the scene, and he sort of gets berated by the, by the grief, understandably so, and he goes up to the tomb, and he raises Lazarus from the dead, and it it, it endeared him to this family in a more... A heightened way, so you can imagine here that this Mary loves Jesus not only because she knows him for who he is, but she also brought her beloved brother from the dead. There's no indication that she was married, so she very well could have depended on Lazarus for her very uh, her very life. And so here, she gives her most valuable treasure. A grateful response to his grace and mercy. It's a symbol of love and devotion for the king who had raised her brother to life and also raised her life back in the process. But notice to the disciples standing there, Jesus was not worth such a gift. What a waste, they say. I love what Brother Mike last week had said in his message, that you shouldn't be surprised when people, including believers, criticize you when you think that, when they think you're extravagant giving and serving is too much. Let Jesus deal with him as he deals with the disciples here. Those people that are criticizing, they don't know your life. They don't know what you've been through. They don't know what you're going through. They don't know the level of gratitude you have and what Jesus has brought out uh, from your life. Their story is not your story. But for those of us that have truly experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus, who have taken an audit of who we were and what we've done and how we've been healed and how we've been saved, and how Jesus in his mercy has changed us, how can we not live lives of alabaster jars to be broken open and poured out for him? This is what Jesus has done for us. This scene is not about how much money to give. It is about recognizing who Jesus is, what he has done, and how to respond in giving uh, unlimited and, 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 and extravagant devotion. It's about giving Jesus our most valuable treasures, namely, our very lives. Romans twelve one puts it this way, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view in light of because of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies, your lives, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true act of worship. We should keep the words of the martyred missionary Jim Elliott on the forefront of our minds when he said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. If we're still on the fence, verse 6, Jesus offers us a reason why we ought to consider giving every square inch of our lives in service to him, our king. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do whatever, uh, what is good for them whenever you want, but you won't always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So again, Jesus here is, is, is predicting his uh, his death, which is coming in just a, a few short days. In just two days, his, uh, his wrists and his feet would be nailed to a, a, a splintery uh, piece of, of lumber and he would hang on that cross uh, alone. He would be uh, held on that cross naked, uh, suffocating, but yet giving out of pure love. His suffering and death Uh, were used by God the Father to pay for our sin. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved upon Himself. And just as Mary broke open this costly jar and poured it out as a fragrant offering uh, unto Jesus, God the Father gave His most costly thing, the life of His own Son, which was broken And his blood poured out for us so that we can be made new again, that our sins would be removed, and we can be restored into a right relationship with God. Mary could pour out her most expensive and treasured possession because God did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. So in response, we ought to pour out the alabaster jar of our lives in extravagant and unlimited devotion and faith. And second, we need to get outside. We need to get outside. There are very subtle things in this vignette that continually point us to what it looks like to live in extravagant devotion and faith. And one of those again is that because of who Jesus is, and what he has done, uh, we are to go to the outside. We are to bring the gospel to outsiders. Again, this, gospel, the, 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 this passage here is all about contrast, and we cannot miss the contrast that Mark wants us to see between the insiders and the outsiders in the faith. To preface this, we have to remember that in the Old Testament, Anyone who was outside of the camp, outside of Jerusalem, uh, essentially, was a defiler of Judaism. See, outside of the camp is where the Gentiles lived. Outside of the camp is where the impure uh, people lived. Outside of the camp is where you threw the carcasses of dead animals that you sacrificed in order to rot and be eaten by animals. Outside of the camp is where lepers lived. In other words, outside of the camp is where everything bad happens, and everything bad is to be, and inside the camp is where everything is pure and good. It points to the language of the Garden of Eden, actually, whereas in the garden, everything is perfect and pure, and the judgment of God is to be outside of the the garden. Paradise in, death and decay outside. Jesus, in fact, was crucified outside. Of the city walls of Jerusalem. And time and time again throughout the entire Gospel of Mark, it is the insiders who are shown not to get it, not to understand or want to receive Jesus for who he is and what he's done. The insiders are continually shown to be the political and the religious elite, but it's also shown in the disciples time and time again it is shown uh, that it's not just the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the the Herodians, but even the disciples themselves at times tend to be the ones who are playing the role of the antagonists towards Jesus and his mission. But if we look carefully here again at the the details, there are hints everywhere of what we are to do when the gospel, the good news of Jesus, grips our hearts. Look again in verse 3. While he was at Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. A woman came with an alabaster jar of expensive perfume and pure, of pure nard. So notice first that there's outside language in regard to their location. Bethany was about two and a half miles outside of Jerusalem, sat on the eastern slope of the the, the Mount of Olives. This is intensely important because the most important thing that is happening in this particular story is happening outside the city walls. And the most demonic thing that is happening, the plot to arrest and kill Jesus, is happening on the inside. And notice whose house they were in. Simon the leper. We have absolutely no idea who this, who this Simon was, but we can guess that he is no longer a leper. If he was, he would have been forced to live uh, a solitary life outside of the confines of the, the city uh, in, in desolation away from any civilization. If they were to see anyone in the distance— uh, they would have to continually shout, unclean, unclean, so that the people that might come their way might skirt around them a little bit more so that they wouldn't have to even look upon the disease of leprosy. And so, he certainly not would have been allowed to own property. So we can guess that Simon the leper here was indeed healed. Healed. We don't know for sure, but my guess is that Jesus had something to do with that. Jesus had no problem taking his grace and his mercy outside the camp to those who were lonely, rejected, depressed, and in great need. Further, look at who it was that took out this perfume. Again, there's no name just the mark of a gender. It was a woman. In Jesus' day, women had little to no rights. A woman's testimony in a court of law was inadmissible. You, you, it was believed you couldn't trust their word. They could hold no employment. They were utterly dependent on family for survival. And yet, Jesus made certain that a woman would be prized and remembered for her generosity and faithfulness to Jesus. Notice that she would break open a jar that cost an entire year's salary. And Judas is plotting to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus had no problem welcoming the perceived lower class into his inner circle. And friends anyone that tells you that Christianity is misogynistic has never read the Bible or paid any attention in history class. Christianity has done more for the rights of women than any other movement in history to say otherwise is complete foolishness of reading the historical narrative. Since Isaiah 40 verse 8 tells us that the grass withers, And the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. And then Jesus made sure that a woman would be remembered throughout eternity for her kindness. And that's pretty cool. In the town of Bethany, in a leper's house, with an act of extravagant devotion by a woman. Mark here is telling us that we, like our master, must get out of the city walls and go to those outside of the church. It might be out of our comfort zone um, in order that Christ might be made known in our community. It might cost us time. It might cost us money. It might cost us families or friendships. It might cost us our, our livelihoods. My cost us our very lives. But as Hebrews chapter 13 tells us, therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate, so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. If this woman can crack open an expensive alabaster jar filled with the most expensive fragrance and waste it extravagantly on jesus then he is more than worthy for us to open our entire lives and pour them out for his glory to be made known friends let's go Let's go. Let's get outside. There is a lost and a dying world out there. Christ has been anointed. He has given us the jar of our lives to be broken and poured out for Him. Let's go. Let's go and be extravagant. Let's go and be unlimited in our faith and in our service for Him. Let's go and have that devotion and faith. Go outside the camp where Christ is there waiting to work with us. Let's go.